turn your copy of the scriptures or scroll in your Bible app to the Gospel of John, uh, specifically John chapter 4. The Gospel of John and chapter 4. We're going to read quite a bit of John chapter 4 today, and we'll start right in the beginning. Uh, John chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. In honor of the reading of God's holy word, if you're physically able, would you please stand and follow along silently as I read aloud John chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. This is what the word of God says. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. And it was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. Uh, When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I am, I who speak to you am he. My sermon's speaking to me. Let's pick it up in verse 27. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. Skip down to verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. What we just read is a unique account on several uh, levels. 
Uh, first, it's noteworthy because Jesus initiates a conversation with the woman, which almost never happened in Jesus' day because in first century Jewish culture, men did not speak uh, with women publicly and especially didn't speak to them alone. So Jesus, right out of the gate, shattered that societal norm. Secondly, it's noteworthy because Jesus was speaking with a Samaritan. And as you read in verse 9, Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. And that's due to a long history of conflict on many levels, which you can read about another time in First and Second Kings, Ezra, and Nehemiah. But again, the fact that Jesus is speaking not only to a woman, but to a Samaritan is noteworthy since Jews had absolutely no dealings with Samaritans, which gives us a good opportunity to go to our first point, point number one. Uh, From cover to cover, your Bible upholds the value of every person that was ever created. Uh, Ever created. From the very beginning, God's word shows us why every person matters and every person's life is valuable. In the very first words of your Bible, in Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 26, we read this. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Every single person that ever was or ever will be has the image of God stamped on them, and that's what gives them dignity and worth from the moment that they are conceived to the moment uh, that they die. Old Testament laws also upheld the dignity of all people, especially foreigners and widows and orphans and laborers and the poor. You can read about that in Exodus and Leviticus. Uh, The prophets of old taught people to value every single human being. The Gospels are filled with accounts of Jesus demonstrating what it means to love all people as image bearers of God, such as what we read today. And the Bible speaks to the value of human life even while in the womb. Uh, We read about an angel of the Lord that told Zechariah that his son, John the Baptist, would be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And that when Elizabeth uh, heard the greeting of Mary, there was a baby that leaped in her womb. And she said, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Not blessed will be the fruit of your womb, but blessed is the fruit of your womb right now. From cover to cover, your Bible upholds the value of every person that was ever created. The sanctity of human life is pre-political. Uh, pre-political. To say something is pre-political is to say that it existed or occurred before political concerns were ever relevant to the conversation. In that sense, the sanctity of, of human life is pre-political. It's not the brainchild of conservatives or Jerry Falwell or evangelical Christianity. It's not a response to Roe versus Wade or anything that has taken place in our culture. It's a biblical principle laid out from the very first chapter of the Bible, even as we just saw from Genesis chapter 1. A biblical principle that takes precedence over political ideologies or agendas. Every single human being was conceived and created in the image of of God. Donald Trump and Joe Biden both bear the image of God, as does Gavin Newsom, Nikki Haley, Andy Bashir, Mike Pence, and Kamala Harris. You and everyone sitting around you all bear the image of God. Atheists don't believe in God, but still bear his image nonetheless. Palestinians and Israelis both bear the image of God, and one doesn't bear it more than the other. Russians and Ukrainians, the far right, the far left, and everyone in between bear the image of God. The born and the pre-born, the young and the elderly, everyone with a clean bill of health and everyone with a lifelong disability are all created in the image of God. The Kansas City Chiefs, along with their team captain Taylor Swift, also bear the image of God. They do. Every single person has the image of God stamped on them. And that alone is what gives them dignity and value and worth. You don't have to like them. But you may not hate them. 
You don't have to like everyone. But you may not hate them. You don't have to vote for them. But you may not disdain them. Jesus commands us to love our brothers and sisters in Christ, to love our neighbors, and to love our enemies. Everyone that you know, everyone that you've ever heard of, fits into at least one of those three categories. Fellow believers, uh, our neighbors, or our enemies. You can wish they were different. You can pray that God would change them and save them. But on some level, and to some degree, you do have to love them. That's hard for me. Uh, Because love and compassion to those I view as other, to those I view as outside of my camp or outside of my social circles or outside of my preferences. It just doesn't feel as good to show them love and compassion. It doesn't feel as good to speak nicely about them. And anger probably feels better. Uh, Love and compassion doesn't feel as productive for people that I don't even know. It's certainly not as popular. Uh, The likes on social media go way down if you post something compassionate, kind, and loving. But post something like a little mean, throw a little anger in there, people come out of the woodwork for that stuff. You'll be Facebook famous like so fast. James 1 and verse 20 says the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. That means if you ever think... If I can just be angry enough, uh, things will improve for the glory of God on any level. If I could just be, like, if I just really focus on this as much as I can, if I could just be angry enough, if I could focus my anger, uh, things will improve. Uh, you You are wrong. If you ever think, if I can get other people to be angry enough, if I can rally the troops, if I can get other people angry at this atrocity or angry at this person or these people, it will produce a righteous end. You are wrong. Listen, anger, is not, anger in and of itself isn't a sin, and it's also not a solution. Anger in and of itself isn't a sin. You can't find, in Ephesians 4, we're told, be angry and do not sin. And so if anger wasn't, if anger was a sin, we wouldn't be given those types of imperatives. Anger isn't a sin, but anger also isn't a solution. Anger is a sign. It's a sign pointing you to do something, but if you camp out at the sign, you'll never get to where God wants you to go. Why? Because the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. It's just not going to work. It's not going to work by God's design. Uh, In our text today, John chapter 4 and verse 4, Jesus, who wasn't angry, starts the conversation with her and asks her for a drink. Uh, She is shocked, maybe even offended that a Jew is speaking to her. Uh, Jesus tells her about living water that she really needed. And she quips back, it's kind of like that he doesn't even have a bucket. It's like, have you ever been to a well? Do you know how it works? Like, you need a bucket. You have nothing to draw the water with. And then she goes on and brags on her heritage. Our our father Jacob. And she goes on and talks about uh, her lineage. You imagine Jesus was like, wow, that's cool. Let me tell you about my father. So his name is God. Probably heard of him. Uh, My dad could for sure beat up your dad. (laughs) But he doesn't. Jesus tells her that she has a need that will never be met by earthly means, a thirst that will never be quenched by this water, and that the living water that he gives causes people to never be thirsty again. And then in verse 15, she relents, and she's like, fine, I'll, I'll take your water, right? If for no other reason that I won't have to come to this well again. And that's when Jesus seems to change the subject and tells her to go call her husband, which brings us to point Number two, uh, you need to approach the Bible uh, with humility, especially if you've read it multiple times. Uh, This point is applicable to everyone, but it's especially applicable for those of us who perhaps have been walking with the Lord for quite some time, who perhaps are pretty familiar with the Word of God. Maybe you've read the Bible even multiple times. Because familiarity breeds contempt. Uh, In other words, the more familiar you are with something, 
uh, the more likely you are to take it for granted, to perhaps not be provoked by it. And maybe even instead of looking at exactly what something says, you're like, I, I've, I know this. These things I've known since my youth. And so you have a picture that you've painted in your mind of what something looks like or how something transpires, which is why you need to approach the Bible all the time, every time, with humility, especially if you've read it multiple times. Why do I say that? Well, the Samaritan woman at the well is typically taught as someone who was sexually promiscuous. Uh, we see Jesus' conversation with her, and we don't doubt his love for her, right? We know the end of the story, but this portion of the narrative we typically see as what I call a gotcha moment, where Jesus calls her on the carpet for her sin, both sins past and sins present. Here we have a woman with multiple marriages, uh, seemingly confident enough to go toe-to-toe with a complete strange man, and all rooted in the different belief systems, so she's anything but virtuous, As I've studied, I think the earliest recorded judgment, if you will, made on her character was by somebody by the name of Tertullian, uh, Tertullian of Carthage. He said, and I quote, to the Samaritan woman, now during her sixth marriage, which that frustrated me because I'm like, did you read it? It's actually five, but the woman he now, she's now, the man she's now with is not her husband, but still, he calls it six marriages. So whatever. A quote, to the Samaritan woman, now during her sixth marriage, not only an adulteress, but also a prostitute, and yet the Lord displayed who he was, listen to this, to her which he did not easily do. So I had to reread that literally like three or four times when I studied this. Did he really think uh, this encounter, this conversation with Christ was difficult for Jesus? Or was he really under the impression that it was difficult for him to show her grace? When, when you read the, the, the scriptures, you see Jesus shows grace and mercy and love and compassion with about as much effort as it takes for you to breathe. A hundred years later, somebody by the name of John Chrysostom proclaimed the woman's marital history to be wicked and shameful from his pulpit in Constantinople. Twelve hundred years later, John Calvin called her a word he was comfortable using in his pulpit that I'm not comfortable using in mine, and went on to say that she was, quote, an unhappy, poor, and common woman, a prostitute, undeserving of God's grace. We really need to approach the Bible uh, with humility, curiosity even, every time, regardless of whether it's your first time reading the Word of God or if these things you've known since your youth. And so with that in mind, let's ask this question. What do we know about the Samaritan woman at the well? And the answer is all we know is what we're told. Uh, We're told that she goes at a time of day when she'd likely be alone. In verse 6, when it says that she was going at the sixth hour, the Jewish day used to start at 6 a.m. Six plus six is, I got you, 12. It's fine. It's the morning. And so she is going at high noon. Uh, People did not go at high noon to the well for water. They would go at the very beginning of the day for water for the day and at the very end of the day for water for the evening. And so the fact that she's going when the sun is beating down on her likely indicates that she's going at an unpopular time where she won't have to interact with other people, but of course Jesus is there. So we do know that she chooses to go at a time of day when she'd likely be alone. Uh, Also, we know that throughout her conversation with Jesus, she's thinking about her earthly life and needs, and Jesus is thinking about her eternal life and greatest needs. She's thinking very, very surface level, very horizontal, and Jesus is constantly trying to get her to look up, constantly trying to get her to think vertically and not just about the here and now. We also know that although she's not currently married, she has been married five times. We read that in verse 18. And finally, she has a man who is not her husband. Uh, I would venture to say that everything I've just told you is just about everything we can draw uh, objectively from the text about the Samaritan woman. Now let's ask this question. What should we wonder or notice about the Samaritan woman at the well? Uh, Well, first thing we should wonder is how it came about that she had five husbands. Uh, Five husbands. You see, in Jesus' day, a woman didn't have the right to initiate uh, 
divorce. Even if this woman's marriages all ended in divorce, those divorces were not her decision. It was not something that she initiated. It was not something that she started. Could she have been a five-time divorcee? Maybe. But it's highly unlikely because in that day and age, uh, men probably wouldn't want to remarry her if that were the case. And if there's one thing we know about this woman, it's that men clearly didn't have an issue remarrying her. She's been married five times. If her husband died or husbands died, she would be particularly vulnerable because she inherited, she would inherit nothing from her husband and keep only what she brought into the marriage. You see, if a woman lost a spouse, uh, she was in very real danger of falling into poverty and destitution. And so uh, women were encouraged to remarry and were encouraged to produce offspring so they could improve their social standing and secure financial stability. Therefore, after each loss of a husband, uh, which, again, whether through divorce or through death, she likely didn't initiate, she was likely strongly encouraged to remarry as soon as possible. So we should wonder how it came about that she had five Husbands. Something else we should wonder is what Jesus meant when he said, and the one you now have is not your husband. Could she be having sex with a man that wasn't her husband? Sure. She, she could be fornicating, no question. When Jesus said, for you have had five husbands, the one you now have is not your husband, that could mean that she was having sex with a man who was not her husband. But it brings us to something else we should wonder, which is why Jesus never calls her to repent or tells her to sin no more as he usually does. If you flipped over one chapter to John chapter 5, Jesus heals the man at the pool of Bethesda. He tells him, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. A few chapters later than that in John chapter 8, Jesus speaks with a woman who was caught in adultery. It literally says she was caught in the act of adultery. Yikes. And at the end of Christ's time with her, he tells her to what? Go and sin no more. The conversation between Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well is the longest recorded conversation between Jesus and anyone in your Bible. And yet he never calls her to repent. He never says go and sin no more, which is another reason why we should wonder if the popular conjecture about her holds water. But we should wonder why the townspeople immediately believed the woman and went to see Jesus, which we read about in John 4 and verse 29 and 30. She said, come and see this person that told me all that I ever knew. And they weren't like, yeah, all right, you're a bit, okay, thanks. Just smile and wave, boys. Okay, thank you. No, they immediately went up. They immediately did what she said. We should wonder why the townspeople believed in Jesus were told specifically because of the woman's testimony in verse 39. She may have been an outcast. She may have worn a scarlet letter of some, of some sort, but still she had enough clout to summon people to come to Jesus and they did so without any hesitation. Uh, we do well to approach the Bible with humility and curiosity, especially if we've read it multiple times. Now, by this point in the sermon, you may be thoroughly confused, maybe a little annoyed. You're like, this guy's all over the map. Let's look at where we've been. We read a lengthy portion of John chapter 4, then we moved on to what I think was at least a nod at the sanctity of human life. He read several Bible verses and referred to the Old Testament and New Testament. Somehow he mentioned the Kansas City Chiefs. We then looked at the Samaritan woman at the well, which I thought I knew about, but apparently I don't. And the sermon title is Within Arm's Reach, which is neither clear nor cute. So I really don't know what's going on. Uh, can he speak plainly, like by a vowel? Get a clue. That brings us to point number three. You need to know you live side by side uh, with modern day Samaritan women and men. Uh, you live side by side with modern day Samaritan women and men. Here's what I mean by that. When I look at this text and I try to think of who is most like 
the Samaritan woman at the well. When I ask myself if we had a well, which we don't, but if we had a well, who wouldn't want to go? Uh, Who would prefer to go alone and not be known? Who would prefer to go and not be seen? Who are the other? I would suggest one group among us that has at least some similarities to the Samaritan woman at the well are those who are post-abortive. By post-abortive, I mean women who have either had one or multiple elective abortions or men or women who are complicit in such an abortion by being somehow involved or paying for, coercing or encouraging a woman to have an abortion. The title of the sermon is Within Arm's Reach, and that's because I'd like to try to call something to your attention that I don't think people believe often enough, but it's true nonetheless. And that is that right now, right now, uh, you are sitting within arm's reach of someone who is post-abortive. If that is you, if you are post-abortive, perhaps you are sitting within arm's reach of someone else who is also post-abortive. You need to know you live side by side with modern-day Samaritan women and men. Statistically, uh, one out of three or four women in the church and one out of five and six men are post-abortive. These statistics are hard because the statistics come by what is reported and what people will self-disclose. And so obviously when reading any statistic, you have to understand that when statistics are disclosed, they are at, at best low because there are others that we know not about and things that people don't want to disclose. But if you do all the math and you do all the research, it's one out of every three or four women, listen to me, in the church who are post-abortive. Now several of you, maybe even most of you, are thinking about why that's not the case in our church. Uh, why that's not the case in our area, or why that statistic is probably true elsewhere, somewhere out there for others, and I want to address why that assumption is both foolish and injurious to others. It's foolish because anyone who is involved in pro-life ministry to any degree knows there's no one particular demographic for which those statistics are untrue. Some assume socioeconomic status or religious affiliation or political affiliation or marital status or level of education or what have you. They think, well, is in blank, you fill in the blank, in that group among these people, uh, surely for that niche group, it's not the case. But I'm telling you, you're putting an asterisk next to a, next to a statistic that has no credible footnote. Uh, it's one in three or four women or one in five to six men that are post-abortive in the church. And so that's why I say it is foolish. But it's also injurious. It's injurious. Let me see if I can explain. I think Sarah and I have been community group leaders for 15 years. It might be more, might be less, but give or take 15-ish years. Uh, The occasions on which I led a community group without a post-abortive person part of it, are extremely rare. One time, uh, there were more than one post-abortive people in my group, and they didn't know it. Does that make sense? Like, the group didn't know it, but also the people who had disclosed to me that they were post-abortive did not know of each other. And so I knew about person A... And I knew about person B, but person A and person B didn't know about each other. Each of them thought they were alone. And I'm sitting in a room week after week knowing they're not alone. Now, if someone discusses this sermon, which takes place in most of our community groups, we discuss the sermon that was preached, and shares a personal opinion uh, that is, of course, unencumbered by wisdom or experience, someone within earshot of that person who is post-abortive. So we have person A and person B. Let's take person H, okay? Person H 
It's talking about the sermon, and, and not even in a mean way, not in a glib way, not in a rude way. It's just saying, I get it, but I don't think that's, I mean, that's not the case. He's, probably, he's from New York and probably thinks this is more common around here. I don't know if he realizes that this is, this is Kentucky, and it's a pretty conservative area, and conservative uh, politically, conservative religiously, there's a lot of Catholics. That's probably not true. And you say that, so person H says that. Uh, in the earshot of person A and B, you give people A and B yet another reason to stay in the dark. Does, 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 does that make sense? Because they're like, wow, we really are other. And, and not, only did, not only what I did was so wrong, but it's especially wrong given where I live. I really am the minority. I really am alone. I really have sinned on the next level. You give them yet another reason to not walk to the well or to go there alone. My experience as a pastor has only proved this statistic to be true in spades. I want to say every time, but it's like not wise to say always and never. So we'll say most times that I preach a message on the sanctity of human life, I hear from someone in our church family who is post-abortive. And I commit to pray for them. Uh, if If they're looking for help, I try to connect them with Someone who can help them go through what they need to go through to process, to grieve. And sometimes they do that. But sometimes they just wanted to tell me their story. And I am, I am humbled and honored and, and so touched and so unworthy of the blessing and privilege it is to hear something that is so near and dear to them. And so hard to speak of. Coming forward like that. Uh, to me, takes such courage and strength, and I'm overwhelmed uh, that I would be trusted. I'm overwhelmed that uh, you would trust me to disclose that, and I'm honored to know you and love you and pray for you. But uh, you need to know that that happens uh, just about, if not every time I preach a message on the sanctity of human life. And it's person A and person B and person E, and person K, all people who see themselves as individual letters yet have no idea that they're surrounded by an alphabet of people who are just like them. Modern-day Samaritan women who are in need of living water, healing water, life-giving water that can only come from Jesus Christ. Point number four, uh, similar... To point number two, just like you need to approach the Bible uh, with humility, no matter how familiar you are with the word of God, you need to approach people with humility and compassion and not assume you know their story. You need to approach people with humility and compassion and not assume, oh, I know this, I know this issue uh, I, know, I know what I've read about. The, I, I, I probably know why this person had this experience. You need to approach people with humility and compassion and not assume you know their story. Now, I want to make a few things clear. I want to make sure you don't misunderstand what I'm saying. If the woman at the well was fornicating with a man, she is wrong. Uh, full stop. Okay? If the woman at the well is fornicating with a man, she is wrong. Sin is sin and always will be sin. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, the first part says, the wages of sin is death. What I'm calling your attention with, to with her is what happens when we make assumptions based on our thinking or our understanding or our best guesses and how off we can be if we don't go with the facts, and if we don't approach people and situations humbly, wanting to listen, and we're arrogant and we want to speak. Uh, our own Camille Cates has produced a phenomenal resource called Moving Forward After Abortion. Uh, it's absolutely excellent. I'd like to read uh, an excerpt from that resource, and it's kind of long. Uh, But it's an account that I think is helpful to understand, to paint some context around these situations. Quote, 
One woman I had talked with had been regularly beaten by her ex-boyfriend. Describing the ongoing trauma to me, she recounted one night that he had beaten her to the ground and then started kicking her in the stomach. She was pregnant at the time and he wasn't happy about it. She decided to have an abortion thinking, quote, it's better for me to have an abortion than for him to end up killing me in the process of trying to kill my baby. After she had the abortion, she thought the abuse would stop. It continued. Another woman I saw was happily married and expecting. She discovered her husband was having an affair. He said he wanted to leave her for the other woman, so she agreed to have an abortion. Not long after the affair, he was having dissolved and the couple stayed married. And She lived day after day in her marriage with regret over her abortion and filled with bitterness toward her husband. The abortion on top of the adultery took its toll on their marriage. Yet another woman, visibly shaking as I met with her, conveyed how her obstetrician had told her and her husband the baby was pregnant and had a severe abnormality. The couple had three children. Though they knew abortion was wrong, they were scared to face the possibility of parenting a child with a disability for the rest of their lives. The trauma of the poor prognosis for their baby had pushed the couple to the edge. She began having panic attacks and nightmares. Her husband was bewildered as to how to help her. They ended up having an abortion. Her panic attacks and nightmares continued long after the abortion, and so did her husband's confusion as to how to care for his wife's mental, emotional, and spiritual needs, end quote. We should never think that life circumstances remove the guilt of sin. Uh, they, they do not. Sin is sin, full stop. However, while understanding the circumstances surrounding someone's sinful choice doesn't remove the guilt of sin, it can and should produce compassion within other sinners. Compassion within us, compassion within all people who are sinful and fall short of the glory of God. You should hear those things and not think, oh, that, that's cool what happened. It's okay. But you should hear those things and think, oh, oh my. Oh my goodness, these people need help. These people need hope. That sounds so unspeakably hard, both in that situation and in the days and months and years after that situation. They need Christ, and you'd be correct. But so many times they don't get the hope and help they so desperately need because they see themselves as other So many of us in recent days and weeks have experienced profound grief and profound grace. Since death is a result of the fall and wasn't in God's original plan for our lives, we need to grieve. Post-abortive people need to grieve, but they don't think they have the right to because they're the ones who had the abortion. Post-abortive people need to grieve and sometimes don't think that they should grieve because they, they never met their child. And so they don't know why they should grieve as if they had. But friends, if people don't get the help they need, traumatic events become the reference point against which they measure anything and everything. Post-abortive women and men know how long it's been since their abortion. Post-abortive women and men know when they're around someone who is the same age their child would be had they not aborted. Friends, I could go on, but the bottom line is you are likely sitting within arm's reach of someone who is 
post-abortive. You think, Sarah and I, lead community groups that are unique in that way. And I say my group probably isn't as unique as you think. And you've likely been within arm's reach in a community group of someone who is post-abortive. We should never think that life circumstances preclude anyone from the healing and hope and help that can only be found in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Yes, we read Romans 3.23 before, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But the very next verse says, and are justified by his grace as a gift uh, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Yes, we read Romans 6.23 before, for the wages of sin is death. But that verse finishes saying, but the free gift, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And if I could leave you with one thing, one thing that you remember from today, if, there's one, if, you've, been, if you've checked out, you've been playing words with friends, or you've been ignoring or whatever, if I could leave you with one thing, it would be point number five. What Christ has done will always matter more than what you have done. Uh, what Christ has done will always matter more than what you have done. And this is a, a key point, a key point in our sermon because I believe that Satan is at work. And, and here's what I mean. This is the truth that Satan would love for you to think applies to everyone except you. Uh, you can believe so much about God and the Bible. You can go to your community group and serve on a ministry team and selflessly, sacrificially give your money away. But if you don't get the fact that what Christ has done for you matters more than what you have done, you'll never go to the well of living water, which is Christ and Christ alone. Uh, he's a greater Savior than you are a sinner. And thanks be to God that that's true. So what he has done for sinners like you and like me will always matter more than what we've done or what we'll ever do. And that's why it's called the gospel, because it truly is good news. Friends, what Christ has done will always and forever matter more than what you have done. And that's something you need to leave here with today, knowing if you know nothing else that you leave here today, wow, I have a greater savior than I am a sinner. Wow, what he did for me is infinitely more than I could ever do. We read things like 2 Corinthians 5, verses 16 and following. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Uh, verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Verse 20, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do, do you understand that? That is the crux of the gospel. That for our sakes... God the Father made him, God the Son, to be sin, even though he knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's like you and Jesus both take a test. Guess who does better? It's going to be Jesus. Let's say you do incredibly awful, and you submit your test, but Jesus takes your test and puts his name at the top. He bears your failure he takes his test and he puts your name at the top. And you put on his robe of righteousness. For our sakes, he made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, John 4 and verse 4 says that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. We didn't cover it before. It's a seemingly innocuous statement. Jesus had to pass through Samaria. The thing is, though, geographically speaking, Jesus didn't have to pass through Samaria to get to where he was going. Uh, in fact, Jews had taken a longer route along the Jordan River specifically so they wouldn't have to pass through Samaria. When we read he had to pass through Samaria, that doesn't mean, well, yeah, of course, because to get from point A to point B, you've got to pass through Samaria. When we read he had to pass through Samaria, that means Jesus had an appointment. A divine appointment with someone nobody would have spoken to at all. The woman was just going to the well for water. 
at noon like she does every day. But instead, she encountered Jesus in a way she didn't know was possible. Instead, she encountered hope and help and healing in a way that was nowhere on her radar, was not on her agenda for the day. On her agenda for the day was get the water. Go to the well, get the water, go home. But Jesus had to pass through Samaria because he had a divine appointment. What about you? Welcome to the well. You're just here because it's Sunday. And you're going to church. It's, it's what you do on Sunday. You, 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 just like she went to the, hey, why are you going to the well? I got a bucket. I'll give you one, you know, I'll give you one guess. I'm, 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 I need to go get water. And just like you, like, where are you going? Well, it's Sunday morning. I'm going to church. But what about you? Maybe you're just going to church, just going to the well, get a little water. But Jesus has a divine appointment for you to encounter him in a way you did not intend. In a way you were not looking for. In a way you didn't know you needed. But Jesus did. And has you right here, right now. To give you living water that you might never thirst again. I need your help. Uh, This resource that I referenced before, again, it's called Moving Forward After Abortion, Finding Comfort in God. Uh, We have purchased enough uh, for one member of every family unit Uh, to have one. Uh, We did this several months ago. Uh, But here's the thing. Uh, This isn't like something that it's like, hey, listen, if you want to improve your parenting, we have a parenting booklet, and so uh, it's out there on the table, and just go get it. And you're like, yeah, sure, I can go do that. Hey, if you want to become a better communicator, find out what the Bible says about communicating, just go to, it's going to be around the lobby, just go get it. You say, okay, I get it. I want people to take this who need to take this, but they're not going to take this. Do do, do you know what I mean? Because they're not going to want to self-identify as people who need this. And so I don't just want to put it on the table. Um, I don't want to put it in a restroom because I think that's sometimes helpful. But again, I don't think people want to be seen putting it in a bag or taking it with them. And so here's how you can help those around you. Here's how you can help those within arm's reach. If we all go to the table in the lobby at whatever campus you're worshiping at today, and we all take one per family, then it's something we're all doing together. Does, 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 does that make sense? It's something we're all doing together. It's not just, okay, hey, if this would apply to you, go and take it. It's, hey, guess what? Congratulations. You're at church today on Sunday. It's going to apply. This applies to everybody because you've just been instructed to go take one. And so one of the things, one of the greatest things that you can do today to help those around you within arm's reach is to, as you leave, make sure you take one per family so that other people will take it as well. Does that make sense? Okay. I really need us to do this well at all three campuses. I really want people to have this resource in their hands as a gift to them that God might use the scripture and the gospel that's preached within it to help them take next steps. And so please, on your way out today, uh, pick up one copy for each family at the table in the lobby. Fun fact. In the Eastern Orthodox Church, the Samaritan woman at the well is known as Saint Fotine. I think that's how you pronounce it. P-H-O-I, P-H-O-T-I-N-E. Fotine, Fotine. Who eventually migrated to North Africa with two of her sons, uh, where she was martyred in A.D. 66 under the reign of Nero for preaching the gospel. You know what that means? 
that means her encounter with Jesus literally changed the trajectory of her life. Uh, enabling her to pour out her life for the sake of the gospel. Uh, that means that what happened with her, what happened with her encounter with Jesus was way more than any uh, legislation or politicking could ever do for her heart and her life. Her encounter with Jesus literally changed the trajectory of her life, enabling her to pour out her life for the sake of the gospel. What about you? Uh, Imagine what an encounter with the hope and help that can only come from Jesus might do for you. His hope, his care, his compassion, and his love today is within arm's reach as well. Father in heaven, we with heavy hearts come before you today uh, lamenting uh, the world in which we live, uh, the situations in which we find ourselves, uh, the choices even that we have made. And we are grateful for your grace and mercy, mercies that are new every morning. Lord, today, for your sake, for your sake, would you... Reach out and touch minds and hearts. Would you use this collective effort among our church family uh, as we go from here and take a resource? Would you use that resource and the words of Holy Scripture contained within it to bring healing and help and hope to people who need to see their primary identity as a Christian, as a child of God, Lord, remind us today that what you have done is greater, more powerful, more efficacious than anything we could ever do. And change us, we pray, for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.